Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. DRC political parties submit lists of candidates for key government positions and South African Commission of Inquiry into State Capture resumes in Johannesburg. In economics news, African airlines register growing passenger traffic and in sports news, Football Kenya Federation ends contract with coach Sebastian Mine. But first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Egypt has wrapped up a two-day summit with Sudan's main protest leaders. Its foreign ministry says the meeting brought together the Alliance for Freedom and Change and the rebel groups on the Sudan Revolutionary Front. The objective was to achieve peace as the long-awaited deal is signed. The constitutional declaration scheduled to be formally signed on Saturday outlines the formation of a transitional civilian government and a parliament to govern for a three-year transition period. The agreement stipulates the formation of a joint civilian-military ruling body. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has issued a stern warning to opposition party, the MDC, to ensure the upcoming protests are peaceful. MDC has planned a series of demonstrations which starts on Friday to protest against the current economic and political hardships. Mnangagwa says the right to demonstrate should not be used to violate other people's rights. We will with greater resolve, protect constitutionally enshrined rights. Fully cognizant, however, of the fact that the enjoyment of such rights is not absolute. Our efforts to turn around the economy will remain underpinned by a spirited campaign to eradicate the pervasive vice of corruption. The African Diaspora Forum says the South African government's efforts to rid the country of counterfeit merchandise does not start in the Johannesburg CBD, but rather at the country's ports. The forum has called on foreign nationals in the country to respect the rule of law. On Monday, foreign nationals protested outside the Johannesburg Magistrates Court, calling for the release of other migrants who were arrested following raids in the CBD. They were arrested after being unable to produce documents proving that they were in the country legally. The foreign nationals alleged that they were being unfairly treated. Forum Chair Abdul Karim Algoni. The law is there to be respected. And this is the country of Mandela. This is the country of the human rights. So we expect everyone to be treated with dignity and not to be denied their rights. If they are counterfeit goods, they must be stopped at the ports, not in Johannesburg CBD. They should be stopped at the stores where they are stored, not in Johannesburg CBD. Johannesburg CBD has a number of traders who are trying to make ends meet. They are either local or migrants. 
Scientists seeking a cure for the deadly Ebola virus have found that clinical trials using a new type of treatment in the Democratic Republic of Congo have proved highly effective. Scientists working with the World Health Organization say the new procedure uses antibodies attached to the outside of the Ebola virus, making it harder for the microbe to infect human cells. The current outbreak in eastern DRC began in August last year but is dwarfed by the West African epidemic of 2014 to 2016 in which over 11,000 people died. Anthony Fauci is one of the researchers. The real advance is that we had no intervention that could successfully diminish the mortality of this disease and these two interventions that we're speaking about now clearly have been shown in a very scientifically sound study to be able to dramatically diminish the mortality. And finally, the United States has announced that it will penalize legal immigrants in the country who rely on public assistance programs such as food stamps, medical care and housing vouchers. The move forms part of a drive to curb immigration. The new policy, known as the public charge rule, is due to come into effect in 60 days. Acting Director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, Ken Cusolini announced the new policy at a media briefing at the White House. Through the public charge rule, President Trump's administration is reinforcing the ideals of self-sufficiency and personal responsibility, ensuring that immigrants are able to support themselves and become successful here in America. Our rule generally prevents aliens who are likely to become a public charge from coming to the United States or remaining here and getting a green card. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The fourth annual Top Women's Conference in partnership with Standard Bank and South Africa's Commission for Gender Equality is a renowned initiative that connects the public and private sectors by identifying, recognizing, celebrating and sharing best practices of different organizations and individuals who can clearly demonstrate success on projects aligned with gender empowerment. Channel Africa will be at Empress Palace on Wednesday the 14th and Thursday the 15th of August to cover this Women's Month event. Join African Dialogue and Humanity for the gender event. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Prime Minister, Sylvester Ilunga Ilungamba, has received a proposal list of new government members from the Common Front for the Congo and the Cap Paula Chargemong. Both lists are to be handed over today to President Felix Tshisekedi, who's the only one allowed by the country's constitution to appoint ministers and deputy ministers for the new government. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. 
The list of suggested ministers and deputy ministers to be part of the so long expected government are in the prime minister's hands since Sunday evening. Both coalitions, meaning former President Joseph Kabila's common front for the Congo, well known as FCC, and current President Felix Tshisekedi's cap pour le changement, well known as cash, have drafted the list according to the number of positions. The upcoming government is to be made of 65 members, including 48 ministers and 17 deputy ministers. The FCC has 42 members out of the 65, and the cash has 23. And indeed, each coalition has prepared the three names, including one woman for every position, according to the prime minister's requirements. The delegations of the two coalitions were headed to the prime minister by Naimim Wilanya Wilonja for former President Kabila's common front for the Congo and Jean Marc Kabunda Kabund for President Chisekedi's cap pour le changement. Both heads of the two delegations didn't want to talk to the media, but indeed, Prime Minister Ilunga Ilunkamba said he has now to work on the list and have the first draft to hand to President Felix Tshisekedi. The exercise is not easy, especially the ambitions management, which is always the most complicated in our country. But I believe we are on the right way for the coalition government to be put in place very soon. I'm going to work and see if the requirements have been taken into consideration. It's indeed the President of the Republic who's the only with power to appoint the government members, including ministers and deputy ministers, according to the Democratic Republic of Congo's constitution. Most of people here in the DRC are criticizing President Tshisekedi for allowing the country to have a government with 65 members as they suspect such a big number won't really help to solve this country's people problems but might bring in more complications. And according to this analyst from the Protestant University of Congo, this is mismanagement and no good result can be expected from such a huge number. Israel Mobi. I think that uh, it's bad management you know it's really really bad to see such as things you know it's no sense to engage more people about uh, such as things i think uh, the result will be very bad in the end but we are expecting what they are going to do so we are wearing as they are not starting working that's why we have to observe what they are going to do and uh, after that we're going to examine what they are going to do so firstly we have to observe what many describe as very funny here is to see former president joseph kabila's common front for the congo keeping 42 positions within the 65 member government leaving only 23 to president chisekedi's cap pour le changement this analyst from the protestant university of congo looks at this like a shock for many here in the the Democratic Republic of Congo, as Kabila's coalition remains the owner of most of the positions, and this might put current President Chisekedi in trouble to lead this country. Once more, Israel Mobi. It's uh, really a shock because Mr. Kabila is no longer a president. You know, Mr. Kabila and the new president, they used to meet on slide. That's why uh, it's amazing. Talking about our political marriage, it's really, really bad. You know, this man is no longer president. He can let this one to lead the country. We want the new faces in our government, but we still see the old means, those who are running before. You know, only they want to keep that place for stealing money and they want to make population poor.
that's why we are suffering too much about that. But uh, what I think in right now, we are expecting the war. We are expecting the disaster because Mr. Kabila, that one has bad mind thinking how to lead the new president. So we don't expect good things. Everything has been done according to an agreement between the FCC and the cash. Since Kabila's coalition has won the majority seats at all the decision-making levels, Chisekedi's coalition then didn't have any other choice but to enter a partnership for leading the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's then a government of coalition which is expected here any time, and most of analysts believe at this stage the newly expected government might be known before for the end of this week. Jean Noel Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Let's go back in time to today in 2003. Libya and families of victims of the 1988 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, sign an agreement to pay as much as $2.7 billion in reparations. The agreement also called for Libya to acknowledge responsibility for the bombing. Today in history, 2003. President Emerson Nagagwa of Zimbabwe is marking his first year in office as the elected leader. Despite his campaign promises, he has faced major hurdles from the get-go. Only last week, the United Nations increased its aid appeal to help Zimbabwe recover from drought that has driven millions to the brink of starvation, as well as a cyclone that hit eastern regions earlier this year. The crisis has been exacerbated by a crumbling energy sector and extensive power outages across the country. The BBC's Shinganyoka reports from Harare. A constant hum permeates the air at one of Harare's top shopping malls. This mall is designed like a Tudor village and in front of me there are rows upon rows of generators, large and small, gracing the back doors of almost every shop. The restaurants, the boutiques and the supermarkets are all doing what they can to try to stay in business. In May, authorities here introduced rolling power cuts, citing many issues. A drought-induced low water levels at the major hydroelectric dam and little capacity to import all of its power needs. But even the fuel to power the standby generators is in short supply and the price has increased almost sevenfold since January. With the exception of the city centre, power is mainly available for only seven hours a day. Inside the dimly lit factory of the largest cooking manufacturer, Surface Wilma, the sound of machines has given way to the sound of birds. The machines are silent. The machines will remain silent till there is no power. So we expect the government to take actions now. That's Executive Chairman Noritam Somani. Well, if this continues for long, then we'll have to make plans to shut down the industry and uh, retrench people, uh, which will have an impact on the economy again. We have invested every year as foreign investors and uh, we'll have to wait for the right opportunity time when the power is back again. He says the company has lost a million dollars worth of business and export orders hang in the balance. Business representatives say power cuts have cost the country 200 million US dollars in lost revenue. Darkness envelops the capital and workers are heading home. Smoke begins to rise in the backyards. 
Many cook on open fires now. And through the windows of some of the homes that we pass, silhouettes are hunched over candlelight and lamps. Thirty-one year old Marshall Chikasha is helping his son with his schoolwork. He lights the small chalkboard with his cell phone torch. The cell phone is no longer for communication. We save the battery to use it as a torch so that our children can see what they are writing. Even with cooking, electricity is a stranger to us. We never thought it would come to this. Given the current situation, I am not sure if things will come right again. Well, I would say to them that uh, the anger and frustration is uh, understandable. Newly appointed Energy Minister Fortune Chasi believes there's no quick fix. Despite a recent 300% tariff hike, electricity is still heavily subsidized by the state and Zesa, the power utility, is virtually broke. Uh, I would say that that anger and frustration must uh, also translate into a realization that Zesa must be a viable entity and that our tariff whilst we have improved on it is still way below cost reflectivity and I've been encouraging everyone to pay their bills. Zesa is hogged 1.2 billion. Almost every sector of uh, consumption has not been paying. As Zesa strives to recoup more money from its customers, it has managed to pay off some of its substantial debts to South Africa's power utility, paving the way for imported power. This may increase supply, but it will not end the outages. In the meantime, generators, torchlights and candles will remain among the myriad of broader economic challenges Zimbabweans will have to endure. That report by the BBC's Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Tanzania has established a commission of inquiry into the death of 71 people after an oil tanker exploded in Morogoro region on Saturday. 59 people remain hospitalized and receive treatment as a result of injuries sustained from the fire. The explosion happened after people tried to take fuel from the tanker. Isaac Lukando reports. Tanzanians are concluding a third day of mourning for those who perished in the deadly fire on Saturday. An oil tanker had overturned on Saturday morning and a big fire was ignited after the people in the vicinity tried to take fuel from the tanker. Now the majority of those who died were buried on Sunday but the tragedy has left many questions unanswered and chief among those questions is whether the death could have been avoided in the first place. Tanzania's Prime Minister, Kasim Majaliwa, has established a commission of inquiry to probe the matter. In an address to mourners on Sunday, he said that the commission will investigate how government institutions responded to the tragedy. The commission, whose composition is yet to be made public, is tasked with finding out if any authority is culpable in this matter. And as a sign of the Prime Minister's resolve to find the truth, he has asked the Commission not to hesitate to mention him if he is found to be blameworthy. The Commission is to report back no later than Friday of this week with the findings. Today is a public holiday in Tanzania as Muslims in the country celebrate Eid al-Adha. However, the tragedy has put a damper on celebrations as the country remembers the dead 
and the government concentrates its efforts on ensuring that the injured recover. Many Tanzanians will be hoping that such a tragic incident doesn't repeat itself in the future. That report by Isaac Lukonda. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. The South African Commission of Inquiry into State Capture has heard that the feasibility study for the controversial Estina Dairy Farm project in Freda was more of a document on farming than feasibility. In conclusion of his testimony, which he began prior to the two-week recess, agricultural economist David Marie tested that whoever drafted the study had very little knowledge of the dairy farming industry. The commission was also told how Free State Province Treasury staff were pressured into making a 1.9 million US dollar prepayment to Gupta-linked Astina. More than 13 million US dollars was allocated to the project intended to benefit black emerging farmers. Nomalizo Mandela has more. Maria told the commission that the study, which was only done months after the contract was signed, was extremely academic with little detail on the specifics of the project itself. He said it contained no clear information on the processing site of the project. I think uh, this feasibility study didn't have any value. Um, I think it was an exercise done just for the sake of, of doing one. Um, although, as I've said in my initial comment, it's very academic with a lot of jargon in there and, mm. and actually doesn't contribute to the, to the overall evaluation of the project. It's quite worrying because you ask yourself the question from the department's side, who did they go to to get this? And then from the point of view who did it, what type of people did he or she think she was doing it for who wouldn't see these things? Yeah, unfortunately, I can't answer that, yeah. but yeah I, yeah, I agree with you. Responding to the Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo's questions about the involvement of the government in the project, Maria said that the proposal did not provide reasons for the government's involvement. The most important point is, is there anything in those reasons that are given there that says why government should be involved in this project? There is none of those three reasons. Because changed. any private person, any private company can embark on whatever business they want to embark upon is their own money. But here, this proposal contemplates that uh, government must spend money. Yeah, I agree 100% with you and definitely not an urgent need, as is stated in the beginning of that paragraph. Yes. The Commission also heard how Free State Treasury staff were pressured into making a 30 million rand prepayment to the project. The former Deputy Director General at Free State Treasury, Anna Furry, says she was urgently pulled out of a function to process the payment on the same day she first heard of the project. She says she raised her concerns with the Agriculture Department's Chief Financial Officer following her assessment of the agreement between the department and Estina that had been signed a week earlier. Based on the last two facts, the fact that the procurement process were not, was not followed and in the absence of a deviation approval, I then indicated that should the payment proceed that will result in irregular expenditure because the normal procedures were not followed. 
And what was not clear is because we could not prove that the funding was, or was there available and appropriated, if the funds were not available, then it could uh, result in unauthorized expenditure. The hearings continue on Tuesday. That report by Nomalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. South Africa's former Deputy Finance Minister Mkibisi Jonas has penned a book titled After Dawn, Hope After State Capture. In it, he explores various options for the country following widespread allegations of state capture and the influence of the Gupta family on South Africa. In the foreword, President Sil Ramaphosa describes the book as a guide to dialogue and engage with each other as we make the difficult trade-offs required to reach our dream. Tsepo Mungwai reports. The book highlights some of the developments that gave rise to state capture. According to Jonas, black economic empowerment was misused to loot state resources. He says the real black economic empowerment can only happen through the emergence of privately black-owned companies. Jonas says currently there are different views on how empowerment can be achieved. Viewers would say use the state as much as you can to prop up black firms up to that point. And that's where it becomes murky because rent-seeking, a little bit of rent-seeking will always be necessary to support transformation. To what extent? How do you manage that? How do you control that so that you don't end up on the other extreme of state capture and corruption? My view is that I think we, that requires leadership to mediate those, those tensions and, and challenges. It also requires a society with a clearer vision and commonality of interest. It also requires that we actually see each other primarily as long-term partners in the long-term projects to transform South Africa, not just kind of immediate uh, uh, quick solutions that we're trying to seek. In his book, Jonas points out that President Sel Ramaphosa faces huge challenges. He says the president must decide on whether to prioritize party unity or matters of national interest. Cyril carries the potential, I mean, to actually overcome some of those weaknesses. He faces huge, huge challenges because I think you're leading a, a ruling party that is divided uh, at the center. And, and where do you put your emphasis? Do you put your emphasis on uniting the party? And what, does, what, has, what is the impact of that on society? Or you put your emphasis on national interest and what does it do to party unity and, and the dynamism within the party. And that's probably the numb of the contradiction that he faces. Perhaps, I mean, and again, I'm saying in the, in somewhere in the book, I argue that the danger would be, you know, at some point to prioritize party unity and party survival, the stay of, party in, of the party in power at the expense of national interest. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. Going back in time to today in 2006, on his 80th birthday, Fidel Castro cautions Cubans that he faces a long recovery from surgery and his younger brother Raul makes a first public appearance as Cuba's interim president. Today in History 2006. South African Judge Irma Skuman is to give her judgment on an application to appeal against the indictment and authorization certificate in the sex case of Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso on Wednesday. Last week, Judge Skuman dismissed Omotoso's application to have some of the 97 charges heard in jurisdictions where the alleged crimes took place. Skuman also ruled that the authorization certificate, which 
advocate Peter Doberman challenged was valid, saying it corroborated with the indictment. But defense lawyer Doberman has brought an application for leave to appeal Judge Skuman's ruling. Andang Ngonji reports. Doberman wants the appeal to be heard in the Supreme Court of Appeals as he believes there are reasonable prospects of success. He argued that there were serious flaws in the Skuman ruling that was delivered last week. Doberman reiterated that there were many discrepancies between the authorization certificate and the indictment. He maintained his previous argument that the indictment and authorization certificate that centralizes all the charges did not correlate. He told the court that the relevant offenses are not stated in the authorization certificate and that there was no way of telling if the current indictment was in front of the head of NPA when the current authorization certificate was signed. Doberman argued it was irrelevant to this trial that his client did not previously make objections to the jurisdiction in the previous trial, as stated in Skoman's ruling. But Prosecutor Ngabandelwa said that this leave to appeal application must be dismissed as prospects of success are unrealistic. He said the names of witnesses, places where the alleged offences occurred, were clearly stated before they were centralised as reflected in the current authorization certificate. He argued that the exercise of stating the exact charges was unnecessary. Ndelwa argued that the authorization certificate could not be read in isolation as it relates directly to the indictment. He said the indictment details the charges and offenses. He told the court that there was no other indictment that can be brought up as there is only one indictment. Meanwhile, NPA regional spokesperson Rukolo Charlie believes that this is just a delaying tactic from the defense. He says their witnesses are ready to give evidence. These witnesses are ready to testify and you know the delays will not change anything and of course the fact that they have to halt their what they are supposed to be going on with their lives and come to court and only to find that you know there'll be another delay of course the disappointment but you know in in in, in interest of fairness in the case we believe that even after the delays this case is going to go ahead and people of this country are going to see justice served Charlie says they still have a solid case to keep Omotosu behind bars and believes that even if this application could be granted, the Supreme Court of Appeal will rule in their favor. The case has been postponed to Wednesday. I'm Amanda Monji in Port Elizabeth. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Our headlines up next with Than Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines. Egypt has wrapped up a two-day summit with Sudan's main protest leaders. Days before, they are due to sign an agreement paving the way for civilian rule in the country. The African Diaspora Forum says South Africa's efforts to rid itself of counterfeit merchandise does not start in the Johannesburg CBD, but rather at the country's ports. And scientists seeking a cure for the deadly Ebola virus have found that clinical trials using a new type of treatment in the DRC have proved highly effective. Those are the stories making headlines.
Dr. John Demartini visits South Africa four times a year to run his programs. It would be great if the one of the world's leading authorities and educators on human behavior and leadership development is the founder of the Demartini Institute, which offers an extensive curriculum of more than 76 courses on self-development, life mastery, and leadership. Demartini's knowledge is the culmination of 46-plus years of cross-disciplinary research, and he travels internationally full-time addressing audiences in media, seminars and consultations. To tell us more about his visit in South Africa, Dr. Demartini joins us on the line. Good morning, Dr. Demartini, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Yes, good morning and thank you. Now, talk to us about the programs you run here in South Africa. What are the programs all about? Well, it depends. I have uh, series of my, I've done uh, the Breakthrough Experience, which is my signature program, which I've done about, I think, 1,080 times around the world, and it's basically on helping people take everything that they have perceived in their life that they think is in the way of what they would really love to create and accomplish and turn it into something on the way and help them see things in a way where they can be resourceful and be grateful and achieve more, and so that's a two-day program. I had a program last night that was involved in uh, the power of living congruently uh, to awaken the leadership in you. And tonight I have one that's on how to not just fit in and just subordinate to the world around you, but to give yourself permission to shine as an individual and stand out and make a difference in the world. So each program, then I have a training program that's involved in uh, the Demartini Method, which is a, a, a method to help people resolve emotional conflicts and, and uh, resentments and angers and things of this nature so they don't be distracted by that. And I use that as I train that around the world. And I have uh, various evening programs and luncheon programs and then media while I'm here. So I keep a pretty busy schedule when I'm here. A very tight and busy schedule. Now, how do people get involved? Where do, do, where do, you, do people uh, make their bookings to be a part of that uh, audience that will be um, learning or, or hearing a lot from you live? Well, they simply can go to, I think here you can go to some of them. On, the, the public talks can be done at at uh, the copy ticket, or you can go to just drdmartini.com, the website directly, and it has uh, under events, you can sign up through the events, but drdmartini.com, that's also an educational website, so people can go on there and learn just numerous things in many different areas that can help them advance their life and be more grateful and appreciative of life. Now, who's this talk relevant to? Who is your target market? Well, you know, it, it varies depending, because uh, sometimes I'm also doing programs for education and youth, so, and sometimes we go into with the educational departments. Sometimes we're doing things for religious organizations. Sometimes we're doing things for corporate. It depends on the topic and request. Um, but most of them are are individuals, you know, people that want to get ahead in life. Many, many of them are entrepreneurs. Some are families. They just want to be able to be more effective at raising children. Some are basically involved in running businesses and wanting to get more ahead and be able to get ahead financially. Uh, it depends, uh, but mostly entrepreneurs. Uh, I've got them. I've have six-year-olds in some of the programs, all the way up to 80s and 90s, and others that have health issues. It really is quite diverse. Uh, my my main objective is to help people empower as many areas of their life so they get the most fulfillment out of life. 
If we don't empower ourselves intellectually, we're told what to think. If we don't empower ourselves in business, we're told what to do. If we not empower ourselves in our finances, we're told what we're worth. Every area of our life that we don't take command of, other people tend to take command for us. And not everybody's dedicated to helping us live a fulfilled life. If we don't take command, not everybody's guaranteed to be focused on that. Now, prioritize your life and delegate lower priority things. Well, if you don't fill your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, it fills up with low-priority distractions that don't. And if you don't uh, learn to delegate, you'll be trapped doing things that uh, weigh you down that are less inspiring. And you'll also stop the economy from growing because delegation gives new job opportunities. And if you do that to people who love doing the things you want to delegate, it frees you up to do things that are more inspiring for you. And that, if you can do that and do something that contributes, you get more meaning and fulfillment and you also have a, an elevation in the standards and economics in your life. Now, let's speak about uh, let the voice and vision on the inside guide you so that you can activate your genius and do something extraordinary. What's the reception when you put the thoughts into an audience and, uh, you know, their reaction? Well, it depends, again, on the audience. If I'm speaking to leaders in government or speaking leaders to corporations, they get a grasp of that. If I'm speaking to youth, it's novel to some, but depends on the audience. But I, I really believe that we have a yearning to express something great inside us. And I've, and I've, I've spoken in places from Kruger's Pope Prison all the way to the executives of major companies, and I've never found a person that deep inside that didn't want to do something more contributive and meaningful and want to make a difference. So if they let that inspiration See, every, every individual lives by a set of priorities and values, and whatever is highest on the priorities, when they start to take action according to those, they wake up a spontaneous yearning to want to do something amazing, and they want to contribute, and they want to solve problems. And so giving themselves permission to pursue what is truly deeply meaningful to them allows them to get that activated voice and vision on the inside clearer, and they express themselves. They don't withdraw, and they don't shrink. They shine and expand. And that's the thing that wakes up genius, because when they're tackling challenges that inspire them, genius is wakened. Now, most governments uh, are ravaged by corruption, among other things. What can you say about political leadership in general? Well, when people are doing something that's deeply meaningful, and they're very convicted to the thing that they're called to do, they're less likely to be swayed on the outside. And sometimes, uh, as you go up, You've got to be able to uh, you know, deal with businesses and deal with people in societies and organizations, and they're, not, they're trying to grow themselves. And so it's a, it's a constant challenge to be able to go out and be yourself amongst the, the, the multitudes, you might say. But the one who's the true leader has the courage to do it. Otherwise, they're just following at other people. Many politicians are just wanting what polls, follow the polls and just go by whatever the, the polls say, and that, that fluctuates and is wobbly. But the true leader is the one who is able to direct the path and guide the people wisely. And that's not often you find that. Most people are succumb to the basically pressures from the outside instead of letting the strength and the real vision and leadership from the inside take command. And, and it's uh, the ability to articulate a real vision in terms of other people's values and educate and explain how and why it will be greatest in the long run, not a short immediate gratification, but the long run for a country. This is true leadership. I was working in Trinidad, in the islands of Trinidad, and uh, Tobago there with the leadership there and the government, and we were working for two days on just that and making sure they didn't let the world on the outside interfere with it because they were having lots of people trying to bring down and organizations use pressure to bring down government direction. 
And when we start, started to teach them the principles on how to not to do that, they've already made a difference in their, their government. And literally in a year, one year, they've made a difference. So you can do it, but you have to have the, the conviction of something that's truly wise. Because you, if you're going to leave your legacy, immediate gratification is not the path. Dr. Zimatini, a pleasure having you on, on, on the show. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And have a great day. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. And to you too. That's Dr. John DeMartini, world-renowned expert on human behavior, joining us on the line. Over the last few years, the small Mediterranean island of Lampedusa has been on the front line of the migration crisis, an Italian territory which is nearer to the coast of Africa than to the Italian mainland. The Lampedusan people have spent years helping and offering aid to the thousands of migrants who land on the island or who are brought there by search and rescue vessels. Compared to 2016, the number of migrants arriving on Italian soil so far this year is down by a whopping 98%, yet feelings about migration are running higher than ever. In March, during the European elections, the far-right Lega Party, whose star is the populist anti-immigration deputy prime minister Matteo Salvini, took first place in Lampedusa. The BBC's Emma-Jane Kirby has returned to the island to try and find out why. It's the start of another busy day for Lampedusa's taxi driver, Emanuele Bilardello driving his white off-road vintage Mahari and dressed in a garish candy-striped shirt with matching glasses, Emanuele cuts a colourful figure on this sun-bleached island and he does everything he can to get noticed by the tourists. He's also very happy to put his political views out there too. Salvini, numero uno. Salvini is the number one, he grins. Salvini is addressing the migrant problem. There are so many who arrive. They're arriving a bit less now, though, he adds. He's blocked a few. I think that all of Sicily, not just Lampedusa, voted for Salvini. I reckon Salvini will become someone important in Italy. Don't you think so, too? Lega, Deputy Prime Minister Salvini's hard-right anti-immigration party, came first in Lampedusa in last spring's European elections. Parish priest Father Carmelo La Magra, who preaches in front of a statue of Christ crucified on a cross made from the rotten oars of washed-up migrant boats, fears Salvini's rhetoric has legitimized prejudice on the island. What has changed, he tells me after the service, is that there's no longer any shame here in expressing racist feelings or about not wanting to make the migrants welcome, whereas before people might have had such thoughts but they knew better than to express them. Father Carmelo points out that although Lega won the European elections in Lampedusa, their score was only 30%. He hopes the island's swing to the right is not the result of compassion fatigue, but is rather a protest about being constantly under the media spotlight. 
Maybe some here are just fed up with being centre stage, he suggests. Maybe they're not going backwards, they've just got tired of Lampedusa being used by various institutions. He puts his hands together as if in prayer. Some locals are tired of this. I don't think they've gone backwards. Here on the Via Roma, Lampedusa's main shopping street, things look very different from when I was last on the island two years ago. Then you could always see migrants sitting on the benches next to locals, on the church steps and in the internet cafe. Now there are only tourists, thousands of them, and many admit that they only chose Lampedusa as their holiday destination because they knew the number of migrants arriving here has dropped so dramatically. I think they're managing the situation well here, says this woman from Sicily. You don't see any migrants on the streets. No one bothers you, and it's tidy. For years, the port of Lampedusa has been welcoming migrants saved at sea by search and rescue vessels. Now, NGO-operated ships carrying rescued migrants have been refused permission to dock at any Italian port by the Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini. Angela Maraventano from Salvini's Lega Party hopes for an even tougher stance. First of all, she tells me, as we sit in her restaurant, there have been far fewer landings than in previous years, and that's made people here very happy. She shrugs. I say Salvini's policy should be even more hardline than it is now because let's not forget that behind this problem are the traffickers of human flesh. So I hope in the coming months, not only should the ports stay closed, but we should also blockade them with ships to stop these traffickers of human flesh. Salvini will become the president of Italy. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. The Kenyan Strategic Food Reserve Board has shelved the intended maize imports, citing a steady supply of grain in the market. It says the following a stable supply resulting from an increase in imports from Tanzania and Uganda. There was no need for the imports. The agency had proposed importation of 2.5 million bags in July to cushion the country against the anticipated shortage between August and September before the onset of the main crop harvest in the North Rift. African airlines continue to build capacity, improving passenger and fleet numbers. According to details contained in the 2018 International Air Transport Association report, African airlines carried 92 million passengers out of the global traffic of 4.4 billion passengers. The numbers, which exclude passengers ferried into the region by non-resident carriers, represent a 5.5% growth. 
Indian firm Navabar Adventures operating the 300-megawatt Mamba coal power plant in Zambia's Sinazongwe district says over 900 million U.S. dollars has been invested to enable the plant to run on full capacity. The company says that the plant has been operating at full capacity, feeding net 265 megawatts of electricity onto the Zesco National Grid for the last three years. The Central Bank of Lesotho has warned the public against investing money into Ease, a company that is allegedly passing itself as a stock exchange. The CBL is currently the Maseru Securities, or rather developing the Securities Maseru market as a platform to facilitate decentralized trading financial securities in a secure environment that enhances confidence to investors. Maseru Securities Market was established by law in 2014 through the Capital Markets Regulation of 2014. The U.S. dollar is trading at 363.15 Nigerian Nara, 10.90 Botswana Pula, 101.96 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.1 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.96 Brazilian roll. 6541 Russian ruble, 7111 Indian rupee, 79 Chinese yuan, and 1531 to the South African rand. 82 pence British pound, 89 cents euro, gold $1,516, platinum $856 pounds, brand crude $58.45 a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, we're kicking off with rugby news. Springbok women's coach Stanley Robenheimer has named the same starting team for the second women's rugby world cup qualifier against Madagascar at Bosman Stadium in Brackpan east of Johannesburg this afternoon. In the first match, the Springboks defeated Uganda 89-5. The only changes to the Robin Naima's squad are on the bench, where Methrin Simas on scrum half, Nomsa Mugwai, flanker, and Ngobile Mshangu, winger, have been drafted in. They replaced Felicia Jacobs, Kathy Luda, and Vuyolwe Tumakolo, respectively. Should Mugwai and Mashangu take to the field, they will make the Springbok women's debuts. The Springbok women will face Kenya in the final match of the tournament on Saturday, with Madagascar taking on Uganda. The team at the top of the table at the end of the competition will book their place in the 2021 Women's Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. Still with rugby, fresh from lifting the 2019 Southern Hemisphere Trophy this past weekend after defeating the Pumas 46-13 in Salta, the Springboks next play Argentina again in the first of two official World Cup warm-up matches this weekend at Loftus First Felt in Pretoria, the country's capital city, before taking on Japan next month, two weeks before the start of the showpiece. Erasmus says they will be using this weekend to finalize the rest of the World Cup squad. No, no, there's definitely a lot of work on. There's, 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 uh, we've ticked a few boxes, but, but, but there's some, some guys need some game time more. Some guys need to pass, uh, pass fitness tests. Some, some, some guys still have to 
get their form back onto speed. You know, if you think about it, this weekend's game is very important in that, that regard. We only have the, the, the Japanese game in Japan before we actually play the All Blacks again. So basically, that 160 minutes, but basically 80 minutes this 80 this weekend because we are taking the World Cup squad over uh, a week earlier to Japan and you can't really chop and change after that because the squad is there. So this week, in that regard, this weekend is really important to, to, to see who is really 100% ready to make that 31-man squad. So uh, a few boxes ticked, but, but some still unticked. Footballer Kenya Federation FKF and Harambe Stars head coach Sebastian Minya have agreed to terminate the coach's contract on mutual consent. Consequently, FKF and Minya have agreed on a settlement for the coach over a period of time. General Secretary and CEO of FKF says they wish to thank Coach Minye for his exemplary work and high standard of professionalism during his tenure, which culminated in the country qualifying for the 2019 AFCON tournament for the first time in 15 years. He says the reorganization and appointment process for a new technical bench is already underway and the team to steer the Harambe Stars forward will be announced shortly. Cricket news, Rassi van der Deysen, stellar form at the ICC Cricket World Cup, has seen him qualify on the revised threshold for nationally contracted players for the 2019-2020 season. He thus becomes the 17th standard bank protier on a national contract and takes the contract that was left vacant following Dwayne Olifir's decision to take the callback route. CSA has also announced the squad plus the coaches and technical staff who will be traveling to India for the spin bowling camp at the Bangalore from the 17th to the 23rd of August. It includes members of the both the South Africa A Standard Bank Protest squads ahead of their respective tours to India. Finally, Netball News South African domestic netball team Twane Sina captain Tina Mdao is hoping to become the regular player for the Proteus national team. She captained her team to successfully defend the national championships in Johannesburg last week. She was one of the best players in the tournament. Mdao was part of the Spa Smiley team that comprised of locally based national team players at the National Premier League earlier this year. Um, just to play clean Nepal, uh, international Nepal, just to grow as a player, learn as much as I can, play in tournaments like this to teach me different styles of Nepal so that um, I'm a better player at the end of the day. Nah, definitely, but my time will come. It's all about patience and just learning until we get there. Twane beat Dr. Kenneth Kaun in the final to retain the title they won last year in Port Elizabeth. They lost two matches against the same Dr. Kaunda and Mangaung prior to the final. Mdau says... They had a good tournament. Um, it was basically part of the game plan, not to not win or make an equalizer, but just to keep, keep it calm, keep it consistent and stick to the game plan. Uh, well, it's a lot of ups and downs. I mean, it's part of the game. You win some, you lose some. It's just how you come out at the end of it. So I think the girls showed amazing character and to lead such a great team into um, a victory, it was just an honor. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, the DRC political parties submit lists of candidates for key government positions and South Africa's Commission of Inquiry Interstate Capture resumes in Johannesburg. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutra Magadza and... Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Sonel Musician with a song titled Indongawe.
Let's get me so good, go up in the morning.